Is there a baby in your life who's about to start solid foods? This can be such a confusing and stressful time. As a mom of seven, I really struggled with spoon feeding my oldest baby. But once I realized that babies can safely feed themselves real wholesome foods using the principles of baby-led weaning, feeding the rest of my babies became an actually enjoyable experience instead of something that I used to dread. Hi, I'm Katie Ferraro, college nutrition professor and dietitian specializing in baby-led weaning, and I host the Baby-Led Weaning Made Easy podcast. Each week, we cover evidence-based, safe infant feeding practices for parents and caregivers of babies who are 6 to 12 months of age. So... If you're confused by all the conflicting info you hear about starting solid foods or you want easy, actionable tips on how to safely prep food for your baby or introduce allergenic foods or figure out when to drop a milk feed, we cover all that and more, plus interviews with the world's leading feeding experts in two new episodes each week. Search Baby Led Weaning wherever you listen to podcasts and happy feeding. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today is episode 114, and we'll be diving into a topic that I absolutely love because it is one of my most favorite things to do, and that is precepting fourth semester students. So today we'll be talking about how to thrive in your preceptorship when you're nearing the end of your nursing school education and you're doing that culminating clinical experience. So before we get into that, let's do a quick listener shout out to Tessa, who writes, I'm in my second semester of nursing school, which is online because of COVID. Your podcast is so helpful to me and my study group. We can really tell that you care and just want to help us succeed. I listen to you while I'm at work and walking my dog in the morning. Thank you for all your time and effort that you put into this resource for us. I have a concern that I'm not going to be a competent nurse because I'm missing out on so much patient-facing clinical time. I feel like it was so helpful last semester to making the connection between theory and actual patients. Thank you for all you do. Tessa, thank you so much for reaching out and sharing that with me. You're definitely not alone in your feeling that you're missing clinical or missing out on something in clinical. So when you do get back into the clinical setting, maybe you can use some of the tips that I'm going to go over today to really help you thrive in that environment and make the absolute most of those very precious clinical hours. So even if you're not approaching that fourth semester preceptorship, there's still probably some valuable nuggets in here. So don't discount it entirely. It's not that you're not ready for it yet. But at that fourth semester, you're really focusing on putting all the puzzle pieces together and really learning how to manage the care of the patient. So congratulations, you guys. You've been working really hard to get to this point. And it's really important that you make the most of this time. This is probably the most valuable clinical time that you will ever, ever have and the most learning that will occur. So chances are you've got a few questions about it. Maybe you're a little bit nervous. So hopefully after we go through this, you feel a little bit better about it and aren't quite as nervous. Okay, so the question that students ask the most about this period in their uh, clinicals is what should I be focusing on? Like what is my focus with this preceptorship? So 
the number one thing, I'm going to talk about three things that I think you should focus on, prioritizing time management and your assessment skills, okay? If you can focus your energy, burn all your calories on those things, you'll be doing very, very well. So let's talk about prioritizing first. As a nurse, as an RN, as a student in your final preceptorship, you are going to be constantly adjusting your priorities or, you know, what you view as the patient's priorities based on that individual's constantly changing status and adjusting needs. So, you know, um, you start off with a plan and it's definitely going to change because people respond to things differently. The patient that you have that starts off the sickest at the beginning of your shift could become your most stable patient as you meet their needs, address uh, what's going on with them, and while other patients develop new priorities. So I want you to really understand that this concept of prioritizing is not just, you know, making a to-do list and doing the most important things first. I do think that new nurses and students find a lot of value in list making. That's just where you are in that novice to expert continuum. But you have to understand that that list or that prioritizing is constantly in flux. It's constantly changing. So what was most important to your patient an hour ago may be way down on the list now because of something else that has come up and that thing is now the most important. So I want you to approach prioritizing as a dynamic process, okay? It's constantly changing in response to what's going on with your patients. So a couple of the things as you're prioritizing, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. What data do I need right now in order to care for this patient? So in order to care for patients effectively, you have to have the appropriate data, right? The appropriate assessments, the appropriate lab information, whatever that is. What data do I need? Is it a vital signs? Is it um, their oxygen saturation level? What data do you need to take excellent care of this patient right now? And then the other question I want you to be asking yourself as you're thinking about how to prioritize is, if I don't act on X right now, will the patient suffer harm? And when you ask yourself that question um, and the answer is yes, then you kind of know what your priorities are. Now, sometimes there'll be three things that your patient is is, uh, experiencing that if you don't act on them, it can cause harm. You need to be able at that point to determine which one is most likely to cause the most harm um, and address that first. So, But as a general rule, you want to know what data you need in order to care for the patient. And you want to ask yourself if you not acting is going to cause them harm. And then that can help you think of how you prioritize things. Now, when when I talk about data, like I said, I'm talking about assessments, I'm talking about vital signs, information from the chart, Um, maybe it's a test result, maybe it's a lab result. You always have to know what data you need because you need to be able to paint a picture. Maybe you need to call the physician and give an SBAR report, but 
you don't want to do that without having all the adequate data in place. Like, let's say, for instance, your patient is complaining of shortness of breath. What data do you need? Well, I, I want to check their oxygen saturation level. Like, that's my assessment priority right there. I'm probably going to do that as I'm putting on the oxygen. Um, but in the nursing process, you always assess first, right? Well, maybe your assessment is you're watching them have increased work of breathing. Um, you want to know what, what data do you need? I want an oxygen saturation level. Okay, so does that make sense? Understanding those two questions and working them into your your daily workflow, your constant clinical judgment, clinical reasoning will help you a lot. Okay, so let's go through a, a scenario. I know you guys like little case studies and scenarios. So let's go through a scenario of a patient that was found down. And this happens a lot. A lot of patients in the ICU, their history is, you know, Joey was found down by his neighbor. We don't know for how long. Okay, so that's our scenario. Uh, Joey's urine is cola colored, and he has a decreased level of consciousness. Joey has been confused. He's pulled out his IV. He won't take anything by mouth because he's just so out of it. So what are your priorities? You've got a patient who's got cola-colored urine, has no IV access, and is really confused. So your priorities for a patient like this right now, let's say his vital signs are stable. You would need to get IV access into this patient right away because, um, you know, found down, cola-colored urine. I hope you're thinking rhabdo. Um, if you're not thinking rhabdo, don't worry. You'll learn about rhabdo in probably your uh, advanced med surge course. But if you're thinking your patient has rhabdomyolysis, they need fluids. You've got to flush those kidneys or he's at risk for losing his kidneys. So if I don't do X... Will the patient suffer harm? If I don't get these fluids in Joey, will he suffer harm? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he will. So we need to get an IV in Joey ASAP. We also want to monitor his urine output and the color of his urine. That's the data that you need, right? You want to know how much urine he's putting out. What color is it? How clear is it? As Joey's urine function improves, let's say you get some fluid in him, it's starting to flush through. As his urine uh, function or <laughs> urine function, renal function improves, his urine output improves, his color improves. Um, you also want to be monitoring things like his BUN, um, his electrolytes, creatinine, um, CKs, things like that. So that's the data that you need. Those are the assessments. And that's what you would want to do. You'd want to get IV access for this patient. So you get the IV access in Joey. Somebody distracts him while you slip a, a, a 18 gauge in his AC and he's got IV fluids running and you feel like a rock star because you are one and he's making urine and you've jumped over that hurdle. Well, now your priorities are going to change, right? Your priority is no longer getting the IV access. What are we going to do about him now? So he's still really confused. So maybe at this point, your priority shifts, shifts to his safety. Is he trying to crawl out of bed? Is he, again, still trying to pull out his IVs? Um, maybe he's in a lot of pain. Maybe providing comfort is one of the priorities that you're going to have. It's going to change based on basically what Joey decides his priorities are. Um, but let's say Joey suddenly starts... Um, 
looking short of breath, looking like he's having increased work of breathing, looking like his oxygen saturation numbers are dropping. Uh, what are you going to do now? What's your priority? Well, your priority now are his lungs, okay? So maybe he's gotten so much fluid that it, and his kidneys haven't quite caught up with the output yet that it's backing up into his lungs. Um, that can happen. So then lungs would become your priority. So you started out your day needing to start an IV to get fluids, and now you're helping somebody with a respiratory, an acute respiratory failure issue. So um, maybe you're going to listen to his lungs. You want that data. That's the data you need. You want to hear, do his lungs sound wet? And when I call the doc, I want to be able to say if his lungs sound wet or not. So you would get that data. Um, you know, get an oxygen saturation level, get a respiratory rate, observe his work of breathing, get the data that you need so that when you call to uh, express your concerns about the patient, you can paint a clear picture. So now, um, you know, the patient still needs the fluids, but he's kind of getting fluid overloaded in the lungs. What do we do here? There's like a tug of war a lot of times, especially in the critical care setting, if your preceptorship is in the critical care setting between um, the, a patient who needs fluids and a patient who's had too much fluid and his lungs are suffering. So, you know, does he need a little Lasix? maybe, I don't really know. What's his kidney function? We're going to check that. A lot of times patients like this will get placed on um, BiPAP. Um, the BiPAP can help. It kind of increases that pressure in the lungs and then it keeps the fluid from building up in the lungs. And then a lot of times patients in rhabdo will end up on short-term, hopefully short-term dialysis. So that could be your priority for the patient at this point, let's say, or maybe he gets intubated and has to be intubated because he's got so much pulmonary edema and it's going to take a while for the fluid to balance out. So we intubate. And in that, you know, in that case, again, respiratory is your priority. So what data are you going to need for a patient like Joey? So um, chest x-ray could show you what his lungs are looking like. Um, an echo can look at heart function and determine that if you need that. Only I would, I would say it would probably be more likely that you would just get a chest x-ray. Um, a BMP, basic metabolic panel, maybe you haven't gotten one in a while, might be a good idea to get one of those. Uh, get a BUN, be it a creatinine, see what his kidney function is doing from a lab standpoint. Is his kidney function getting worse? Is it getting better? How's that urine look? What's his urine output? Is it adequate? Um, look at his respiratory status. Is he tachypnic? Again, the work of breathing. Um, again. BiPAP intubation could be things that happen for Joey. But let's say he gets intubated. And now suddenly, a lot of times you guys will notice, like, especially um, if you haven't been in the critical, critical care setting before, once the patient is intubated, it's often so much easier to care for them because you've taken care of a huge priority um, and intubation just like handles it so well. You've got oxygenation, you've got ventilation, and you've got airway protection happening all at once. So it's just a huge load off. It does bring with it other issues, uh, but a lot of times you're, uh, you'll feel that, oh, okay, he's intubated. I can move on and address all of his other needs now. So let's say that uh, Joey is intubated. 
Maybe he's going to need a central line because, again, rhabdo, very severe uh, possibility for kidney injury. Maybe he's going to need one of those uh, trialysis catheters, a temporary dialysis catheter, something where we can perform dialysis as needed if his kidney function doesn't kick in. Um, let's say the nurse practitioner is there at the bedside and places a central line and suddenly his O2 saturation level drops from 95 to 64 what do we think's going on now? What's our priority? Well, I think maybe the, the nurse practitioner popped a lung and caused a pneumothorax. So now you've got a different priority, which is getting chest tube set up and a chest tube uh, placed in this patient. So as your patient changes, as uh, he responds to treatment, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, your priorities will change, okay? So you want to stay dynamic. You want to stay engaged with what is going on with your patient and always asking those questions. What data do I need? And if I don't act on this, will something really bad happen? And if the answer is yes, you got to make that your biggest priority, okay? So um, just keep in mind, you guys, that nursing is a very fluid, a very dynamic process. Um, how your shift starts out is never how your shift ends, okay? So I want you to remember that and that it's completely normal to feel at first like you're spinning around and around and around. You do get used to it as time goes on. But I know as students, when you're writing care plans, a care plan is a very static document. It exists. These are the problems. These are how I fix them. Well, that care plan in real life is probably only valid for about 10 minutes before there's a new problem or a change in some way in the patient's uh, presentation or their needs. So they are excellent practice. As you are working as a nurse, you'll be care planning constantly as you go throughout your shift because again, priorities constantly change, okay? So prioritizing, number one skill that I want you to work on, well, not the number one, these aren't ranked. These are not like the first, second, and third. There's just three of them because I think they're all equally important. The second thing that I want you to focus on in your preceptorship is time management. So when we look at time management, it can be a really difficult thing for a nursing student, new nurse to master. Um, it's even if you have, you know, two patients in the ICU versus five patients on the floor, time management is going to be very challenging. And that's just because um, there's a lot that you have to do. And it just feels like most shifts are like a race against the clock because you've got all these things that you want to get accomplished for your patient, as well as all the charting that goes with it. And it honestly, some days does feel like it's just a race against the clock. And um, my best advice is to come up with a system for tracking um, two key things for your patient. I like to keep track because you can't always just get right to the computer and chart. So I like to keep track of two key things for each patient. What I need to do and what I need to chart, okay? So how I do that is I use a device that I created and I call it my run sheet and I will link to that here. Um, and I devised it for the ICU, but it's definitely something that you could adapt on the floors. So basically it's a um, two column document in there's time slots. So each um, hour of the day has its own square basically. And each square is divided into two columns. And on the left, I write what I need to do in that time frame, you know, 
provided another priority doesn't rise up. And then on the right side of the column, I write down the things that I need to chart. So for example, um, at the beginning of the shift, I'll write down what times I have meds due, what times I have blood sugars due. Um, if I know what time PT is coming by, I usually don't. But if I do, I'll write that down. If I know I have a dressing change to accomplish that's going to take any significant amount of time, I'll kind of plan, okay, I'll do this here when I go in to give him his meds and then, you know, um, figure out all the things that I need to do. Basic nursing care. This is not responding to the crises as they come up. This is your plan A that you're going to start the day with, that you're going to be adjusting as you go, but you need to start with the plan so that you have some kind of a roadmap. And then on that right-hand column, I'll jot down things as they come up. Um, oh, Dr. Wilson came by at 8.02. Okay, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write a little quick note that he and I talked about um, the patient's urine output and he's fine with it or whatever. Or if the patient um, ate 50% of their lunch and I don't get a chance to chart it right then, I'll jot that down. So it's things that I need to chart that when I go sit down to chart, I will do them all at once then. I know you're supposed to chart in real time. It's not always possible. I'm not going to stop in the middle of a conversation with somebody to say, oh, I need to go chart this conversation. I'll jot myself a note and do it as soon as I can. So keeping track of your to-dos and your two charts can really help you stay on top of your basic nursing tasks, your meds, um, your nursing care, your turns, um, you know, turning patients that um, need help, changing position, oral care, things like that. So I'll link to that run sheet. It's super helpful. Um, whether you guys use it or not, it's fine. It also has a list of things that I have to chart on a daily basis that might be different for your facility. So I, I instead suggest you use it as inspiration to create your own and your own run sheet that works for you, for where you work, for your requirements, and the number of patients that you typically have. Another word about time management is I am a big believer in routines. I have a start of shift routine when I work in the ICU. I have an end of shift routine. I tend to have a first assessment routine that I go through when I first assess a patient. So what does a start of shift routine look like? It really depends on where you work, how much time you can carve out to do it, and um, the acuity of your patients. But in the critical care setting, what I like to do is before I go into the room is quickly read the H&P just quickly. If I don't get a chance to read the whole H&P, I'll read the most recent doctor's note. Here you'll learn why the patient came into the hospital, what other conditions they have that are relevant, what the general plan of care has been, and what the general plan of care upcoming is. So you can get a really good idea of the plan for a patient by looking at that um, latest doctor's note. Or if you just want to look at their past medical history, why they're here, that first assessment, you can look at that history and physical, that H&P. I also like to check recent labs. So um, I, you know, the ones that you are most interested in will really depend on the patient. Universally, I like to look at uh, for signs of infection. So we'll look at the white blood cell count. I want to look to see if they're going to be uh, a bleeding risk. So checking any COAG studies, INR, P3, 
PTT, PT, platelets, things like that, that might tell me if my patient's at risk for bleeding. I want to know about their kidney function. So I'll look at the BUN and creatinine. Some medications you'll hold if their creatinine is too high. So it's nice to have that information handy. I want to know about their electrolytes, potassium, sodium, mag, phos, calcium, if those are measured. Definitely want to look at their blood glucose on the serum. Uh, serum blood glucose versus a finger stick blood glucose, because not all patients get finger stick blood glucose. And that serum blood glucose being high could be the first sign that your patient is septic. So you definitely want to look at that. And the hemoglobin and hematocrit. Are they bleeding? Are their numbers improving after surgery? Things like that. So that would be the basics. And then if they have something specific going on, you know, they're there for a liver issue. I'm going to look at livers, uh, liver LFTs, sorry, <laughs> LFTs, or I'm going to look at amylase lipase if they're there, you know, for pancreatitis or something like that. So look at the labs that are most pertinent to your patient. And you don't have to go back and look at all of them. I look at that days and then um, the general trend of any that are abnormal. If the patient is there for a respiratory failure, a COPD exacerbation, something like that, and they've done an arterial blood gas, I want to look at that. Definitely look at the trend on that as well, because the last thing you guys want to do is call the doc and say, Bob's white blood cell count is 20 and him say, yeah, it was 24 yesterday. Oh, it's getting better. Okay, just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so look at the trends. If something's improving, great. If something's getting worse, now you've got to work that into your plan of care for the patient and address those things. I also want to look at my meds. I want to know what meds I'm giving on my shift. Also, you want to look and see what meds are given off your shift. Some meds are not given multiple times a day, so they may be getting an antibiotic that's given at night and you work on day shift, but you still need to know that the patient's receiving it. So take a quick look at the MAR and then on your run sheet, I write down the times for when the meds I have due are due. And then I make note of any PRN meds that my patient has available. Because again, you don't want to call the doc for a high blood pressure when the patient already has an antihypertensive order that's just embarrassing. And it makes it look like you didn't thoroughly research your patient. And then the next thing I like to do is perform my head to toe assessment of the patient. If I don't have time First thing in the morning, I might just do a quick focused assessment or do what I call a doorway assessment where you just make sure they're not in any acute distress, um, they look pretty stable, and then you can come back and spend time to do your full head to toe. Like if your other patient were crashing, you clearly would not be in here saying, well, I'm going to spend 15 minutes doing a full head to toe on, on Joey. Um, I got to go take care of Clarice over across the way whose blood pressure is 65. Okay, you got to go help that lady out right now. So performing a head to to toe assessment would be the next thing. I like to do it as early in the shift as I can, you know, barring any unforeseen crises that are occurring. Um, I like to look at my sickest patient first. Um, usually what I'll do is if I've got two patients and one is really sick and one is not as sick, I might just do the doorway assessment on the not sick one and then because I know I'm going to be spending a long time in the sick patient's room, but at least I've had eyeballs on the other patient. So, you know, if you're juggling a lot of patients, which is very common in like a, a med surge and ortho floor or something like that, 
Your first assessment might just be that you've got to get those vital signs done so that you can safely give your morning medications. Um, Once you give those morning medications, when you have more time, then that might be the time that you do your full head-to-toe assessment. But again, as you get skilled at assessment, as you get skilled at what I call your nursing intuition, you doing that quick assessment, even with just your vital signs, you'll probably be able to start noticing if something's off with your patient, and that would clue you in and trigger you to do a more thorough examination. So a focused assessment, if you're not um, sure exactly what that is, it's first and foremost, it's focusing on the issue that they're having right now. Why are they in the hospital? If they're in for a respiratory issue, your focused assessment is their respiratory issue. If um, they're there for a cardiac issue, your focused assessment is cardiac. So you want to really focus on why they're in the hospital. Of course, if they've developed a new problem, there's your focus um, at that moment if it supersedes the priority of their other underlying issues. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So let's say you've got a patient who had a vascular surgery. And, you know, for that patient, your focused assessment is going to be you're checking for those pulses. You want to make sure that we've got good blood flow to that extremity. You're checking sensation. Can he feel you touching his feet? Can he move his feet? Are his feet nice and warm? For things like that. For most all patients, I a focused assessment for me would be at least lung sounds, um, even though even if they're not there for a respiratory assessment, uh, respiratory status is something that changes and fluctuates a lot throughout a hospital stay. So I would at least listen to their lung sounds, um, check pulses, and uh, you know check on the heart. Maybe just listen to that as well and get a general overall impression of them. And then if they look pretty stable and I need to go do something else that's demanding my attention, then I can come back later with a clear conscience and do that full focused or that full head to toe rather. And then the fifth thing that I like to do in my morning routine is make that schedule, figure out when I'm going to do all the things that I'm going to do. And I like to set goals with the patient if at all possible. So you're doing your head-to-toe assessment or your focused assessment. Um, I like to talk to the patient about what they'd like to accomplish that day if they're able to participate. Obviously, very sick patients are not. Um, This is also a great time to share with them the goals of care from like the medical team standpoint, well, Dr. Wilson really wants you walking the hallway three times today. So how about we do that right before breakfast, right before lunch, and again, right before dinner? Um, maybe it's that um, they have dialysis later and you, you know, you're just letting them know dialysis should be here around two o'clock. So they know what to expect. Um, maybe your patient has a priority item that they really feel important, um, you know, uh, feel is important, like maybe they want to wash their hair. Maybe they want to um, sit in the chair and they haven't done that yet. So whatever it is, find out what their goals are and try to work those into the plan of care as much as you can. Um, Again, I'm going to go through that run sheet, flush out my schedule for the day with the realization that my priorities can change absolutely at any time. So that is just a quick overview of a start of shift routine that I like to follow. You can obviously develop your own. Um, I will tell you a quick story that I've told on this podcast before, but I took, um, I had a new ICU nurse that I was orienting. Awesome guy. And 
I had been talking about routines and all of this. And he comes to me one day and he goes, you know, Mo, I'm just going to get straight in there straight away and do my head to toe. I'm just going to get it done. I'm just going to get it right out of the way. And I said, okay. And he, at this point in his orientation, he was pretty independent. I could just kind of sit back and watch and then provide pointers and feedback. And he could come to me with questions. So I thought, I'm just going to sit back and watch because I knew what was going to happen. But I didn't want to say anything. You can't, can't tell people what's going to happen. They have to discover it on their own. And as long as no patients were, you know, in any jeopardy, then um, I absolutely wanted him to feel the error of his ways, I guess. So I don't know what time it was. Maybe it was like 10, 1030 that morning. He finally comes to me and he's been running. This guy's been running all morning and I've been watching him run and I'm checking the mar and he's getting his meds done and he's getting his charting done and his assessments done and he's on top of everything, but he looks a little frazzled. Then he comes to me finally, he goes, Whew, I thought getting in there first thing and doing that assessment was the best idea I ever had, but turns out you were right. And so what he had skipped was taking the time to look um, through the chart, get an idea of the the labs, uh, all the meds the patient's taking, develop a plan and set goals. He'd skipped all that, gone right into the assessment. And I'm telling you, once you're in the room and you're interacting with the patient and you start seeing everything that they need or they start asking you for all the things that they need, you're running, you're hustling. Um, it's nonstop. So Take the five minutes to do your start of shift routine if you can, as long as there's no um, high priority items happening and, you know, develop the routine that works for you and it will pay you back. Okay. And then the third thing that I really want you guys to prioritize in your preceptorship is your assessment skills. So Assessment is the most important skill that a nurse has. You are essentially there to monitor and treat patients when nobody else is around. You are it. You're the eyes, you're the ears, you're the hands, you're the brains when there's nobody else around. So you have to be able to assess patients competently, thoroughly, and know what to watch for and know when things are going wrong for your patients so that you can get somebody in there who can write orders and fix things for you. A lot of things you can do as the nurse that, you know, are nursing interventions, but a lot of times it's stuff that you've got to relay to the medical team so that the patient can get, you know, um, a medication, fluids, a certain test, a certain treatment, etc. So I want you to do all your head-to-toe assessments with your preceptor, hopefully they are on board with that and discuss with them what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're smelling, what you're sensing about the patient. Um, you know, say the patient has a chest tube and you're touching it and you're not sure, is that crepitus? Is it not? I'm not really sure. That's why it's helpful to have the other person there who has that experience that can say, oh, yep, that's exactly what crepitus feels like. And once you've felt crepitus, you'll never be able to unfeel it. You'll always know what it feels like. But that first time you might have, you, you know, you might have a question about it. Um, is, uh, you know, let's say you've got a patient who's in cardiogenic shock and you've never seen modeling before. So you're not really sure. Is that what modeling looks like? Your preceptor is there and can say, yep, that's modeling. You, if you see that, this is bad. You need to talk to somebody. So discuss everything that you're seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, sensing, um, all the questions that you have, all the data that you're seeing, discuss it with them. Okay. So do your assessments together. And 
my other advice to that would be very be very accurate, be very thorough in your assessments. Um, don't skip anything. Even if you see other people skipping certain parts, don't skip it because this is your opportunity to practice. Um, let's say you know your patient's in there for a lung issue, and are you going to hunt around for their uh, posterior tibial pulse? If it's yeah, I would say yes, because you want to practice obtaining that pulse. Um, if they're there for, um, you know, a neurological issue, definitely be doing those neurological exams. Take every opportunity you can to assess patients of all shapes, sizes, disease conditions, ages, because the things that you find and notice on all different types of people, all different types of disease conditions will vary so much that you won't get comfortable with assessment until you've done it on a whole bunch of people. Okay, so do as many assessments and as thorough assessments as you can. Okay, and five key assessments that every nursing student should master are pain, respiratory status, skin signs, urine output, and level of consciousness. So those would be the most basic things that you'll use a lot. So get really good at um, assessing pain on patients. This is not just asking the pain number. Some patients aren't able to communicate, so you need to get comfortable using different pain scales. So use those if you need them. Um, Get used to asking about quality of pain, duration of pain, what makes it better, what makes it worse, all those things, very important components of a pain assessment. Um, respiratory status, very important assessment to get down solid, so assess as many lungs, as many people as you possibly can. And it's not always just, it's not always just getting out your stethoscope and listening to people. Um, a lot of it is watching how they breathe, um, observing their work of breathing, observing if they can speak in a full sentence, or do they say three words and pause to take a breath. A lot of times you can hear adventitious lung sounds without a stethoscope. The scope. Maybe you can hear wheezing. Maybe you can hear uh, labored breathing, things like that. So getting really comfortable with respiratory status. Are they gasping? Do they look air hungry? Are their breaths really shallow? Are their breaths really deep and fast? So get used to assessing respiratory status beyond just putting your stethoscope on them and listening to their lung sounds. Skin signs is a great way to quickly monitor cardiovascular and respiratory status, believe it or not. Um, you're looking for your patient's skin to be warm, dry, and appropriate color for their race. Um, any signs of diaphoresis, modeling like we talked about a little bit ago, paleness, duskiness, clamminess, um, these are all causes for concern. So get used to looking at the patient's skin for any signs that there's something more serious going on underneath. And then get used to constantly assessing your patient's urine output, especially in the critical care setting where we monitor this basically on an hourly basis. So if your patient has that Foley catheter, um, it should equal 0.5 mils per kg per hour. That's the general standard. Um, they say 30 mils per hour, but in the critical care setting, we typically go by the body weight measurement. 
Now, I'm not saying you need to measure it every time you go into the room, but you're kind of, you're eyeballing that bag and you're making note to yourself that, you know, there is not very much in there. I'm really going to assess that carefully at the top of the hour or, wow, there's a ton in there. Does the patient possibly have a uh, neurological problem like diabetes uh, insipidus? Maybe they've got like a pituitary um, tumor that's causing a diabetes insipidus, something like that. Okay. So urine output, also very important. Urine output is one of the first signs. Um, a low urine output is one of the first signs that you'll notice with that hypoperfusion. So if your patient's urine output's dropping, maybe their blood pressure's still okay-ish, um, but their urine output's dropping, that's a sign that there's something going wrong with your patient and it needs to be addressed. And then level of consciousness, that's another very key assessment that you need to get really solid at. Um, is the patient alert? Are they oriented? Are they making sense? Are they having conversations with you that track, that uh, are logical? Do they answer questions appropriately? Are they following commands? Um, you don't have to be so formal with um, your patients like, show me two fingers, Bob. Um, but you can assess if they're following commands by saying, can you hold your arm up while I get your blood pressure cuff on? Okay, that's following commands. Or um, can you read the clock and tell me what time it is? That's following commands and also visual acuity. So you don't have to be so formal like, show me two fingers, Bob, because that's, you know, it feels stiff and... Um, as, mo as much as you can be conversational with your patients, it really helps to build that trust and that good rapport and that good relationship. So um, those are just five key assessments that, you know, just get used to doing all the time when you're in your patient's room. You can, it's, it's kind of what I call my doorway assessment, right? You can, you can kind of tell if they're in pain sometimes by watching them, watching if they grimace when they move. Um, sometimes patients in pain don't move because it hurts to move. Um, maybe they are tachypnic because they're in pain, they're grimacing, they're crying, they're moaning, like kind of get clued in to monitor your patient for pain on a regular basis. You can watch their respiratory status, their work of breathing, their skin signs, um, how deep they're breathing, how fast they're breathing. You can glance over at that Foley catheter and see if they're putting out an expected amount, way too much, way too little, and obviously their level of consciousness. And then two other questions that I get asked quite a lot by students when we're talking about that preceptorship experience is, what if I don't get placed in the unit where I want to be? And how can I evaluate my progress as I go along? So the first thing I would say if you don't get placed into your dream unit is to not stress. I really wanted to be in the ICU. And there just weren't enough ICU placements. And I ended up working my preceptor hours on a telemetry unit on night shift. At first, I was I was disappointed. I wanted to be in the ICU. I wanted to be in the hustle and the bustle of all the activity. But it turned out that telemetry at night was an awesome learning environment. So at night, there were less distractions. Um, I got to learn how to manage night shift, um, just my own, you know, sleeping schedule. It was a really tough semester on me, actually. But beyond that, I learned um, what patients deal with at night because I had never gone through any of that. And patients deal with different things at night. There's a lot more um, patients who are confused, patients who need emotional support, those kinds of things. Um, admits coming in urgently from the ER, that kind of stuff would still happen. So we still had action. We just didn't have it with all the um, 
you know, distractions of families around and rounding and, and all of that. And then I really wanted to be in ICU, but I got placed on telemetry. Telemetry was an amazing learning environment. I learned a lot about time management and prioritization because I had four patients that I was looking after. And it was just a really great experience. So the first thing that I would say, don't stress. Um, it's always great to precept where you want to eventually work. But even getting a job offer for a place where you precept is very, very rare. And honestly, when you're uh, hunting for jobs, people may not be looking so much at where you precepted. They may be looking at other things on your resume. It could come into play, but I really don't think that... Um, it's going to be a huge um, leg up because honestly, they're going to have to teach you everything from the ground, uh, from ground zero anyway. So don't worry about it. Your career as an ED nurse is not over just because you didn't get to precept in the ED. Okay, I promise you. So um, anyway, don't stress if you don't get placed into your dream unit. Focus on the things that I talked about in this podcast episode. Focus on your prioritizing. Focus on your time management. Focus on your assessment skills. That's what you're there to learn. You're not there, um, you know, because you eventually want to get a job in that particular unit. That's not very likely to happen. You're there to learn how to take care of patients, and you can learn how to take care of patients in any any environment. Okay. Um, and then how do you evaluate your progress with your preceptor? So if you're taking your preceptorship very seriously, and I bet that you are, then you definitely want to be seeking out useful and meaningful feedback so that you can gauge where you are and how you're meeting your goals and uh, measure that against, you know, where you want to be. So some questions that are helpful to ask your preceptor as you work through your uh, your clinical hours together are, what can I do to strengthen my assessment skills? And you guys, asking for feedback is really hard because you are really vulnerable when you do that. And you're setting up um, an opportunity for someone to tell you things that might not be what you want to hear. You'd love to hear your assessment skills are 100% spot on. But chances are that's not what you're going to hear. And that's fine because the feedback that you get is going to give you a pathway and tell you exactly where you can work, exactly what you can focus on to be an even more amazing nurse. So go ahead, be vulnerable and ask these questions. What can I do to strengthen my assessment skills? Okay. Um, Maybe you you want to get more adept at writing your narrative notes. Can you show your preceptor some of the notes that you've written and ask for some feedback on those? You can ask, how can I improve in regards to my time management, which is a huge one. And I guarantee you they'll have all kinds of tips. Nurses are fabulous at doing things as efficiently and quickly as possible out of necessity, because again, every shift is a race against the clock. And you as a student, you're going to be super slow at things. And that's fine. That's how you're supposed to be. But any tips and tricks that you can learn about time management, about efficiency, your preceptor is going to have a ton of tips and tricks um, along that vein. You can say something like, I realize uh, prioritizing patient care is really important. Can you help me identify my weaknesses in this area? You know, 
Ask questions like that. Make it easy for the person to give you that feedback, okay? Um, and then you can also say, what feedback can you provide about my communication skills, both with patients or the medical team or in giving rapport at the end of our shift, anything that I can do to improve there? And um, you can also say, I'm seeking out additional appropriate learning opportunities. Where am I falling short? Are there any opportunities that you know of that I could take advantage of? Like, for instance, I really wanted to get good at starting IVs when I was a student. And I arranged to go to the pre-op area for a morning where they start a million IVs. And I just started IVs all morning. And by the end of that that day or that morning, I was getting pretty darn good at it. So it was something that I wanted to improve at. I sought out an opportunity to do that and accounted toward my clinical hours. And I felt a lot more confident about starting IVs after that. So those are some key things for your preceptorship, for how you can really thrive in that environment. I hope that this helped you and you feel maybe a little bit less nervous and a little bit like you can go into it very proactively with your learning really being the main focus and the priority of this entire experience. Okay, you guys, so next week... We will be talking about insulin, so we'll be doing a pharmacology episode, and not just on insulin, on some non-insulin medications used to treat diabetes. So I will see you back here next week. Have a fantastic week, and if you're doing your preceptorship, please send me an email to hello at straightanursingstudent.com and let me know how it's going. I love hearing from you guys. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.